Our Old Testament lesson comes from 1 Kings chapter 18. First Kings chapter 18, hear now the word of our God. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go, tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, He is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first for you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances, until the blood gushed out upon them. 
And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two sayas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it the third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the, of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees, and he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord. We're looking today at our pattern in prayer, and we'll be focusing on the Lord's Prayer over the next few weeks. I wanted to show you here in 1 Kings uh, an example of, of how the Lord's Prayer is, is modeled and taught in the Old Testament. I mean, there's a way in which what Elijah does at Mount Carmel demonstrates all that Jesus will say about prayer in Matthew 6. The prophets of Baal spend six hours in prayer from morning till noon. Nothing happens. So they spend nearly six hours more in desperate devotion to their God. No one answered. No one paid attention. They raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, the, the evening sacrifice in Old Testament worship. Then Elijah spends a few minutes preparing his sacrifice, a few more minutes pouring water on everything, and especially in the middle of a drought, pouring all that water. Everybody's going like, yeah, yeah, what are we going to drink? And then Elijah prays a prayer of two sentences, and God answers. I'm not saying God always acts that fast. You know that very well. God does not always answer in two sentences. 
after all. A few, a few verses later in verse 43, Elijah prays seven times. He sends his servant seven times to look toward the sea. So it's even within our own text. There are two different examples of sometimes God answers immediately. Sometimes God makes us wait. But James will remind us that the prayer of a righteous man avails much. Not because of his many words, but because of who he is before God. The righteous man is one who can come to God and pray, and God answers. There's a way in which Elijah at Mount Carmel is showing us, this is, he's pointing us ultimately to Jesus, because our Lord Jesus is the righteous man who sits at the right hand of the Father, and he his every prayer, his every request is answered by, this, by the Father. And we come to the Father in him. We come to the Father in Jesus. We come to God asking him to do what he has promised. If you think about what Elijah is doing here, there's, there's, been, there's been a drought. There's been a famine for three years. And this is actually at the word of Elijah, that Elijah had said, my word, it will not rain. And that's why there's this whole little episode at the beginning with Obadiah, who's like, ah, you're going to disappear, and then I'm going to be dead, and why are we doing this? And Elijah says, well, because now is the time. This is God's time for bringing an end to the drought and bringing a clear, a clear distinction between are you going to worship the Lord or are you going to worship the Baals? It's worth noting that, you know, you might, you might think, well, God, God always provided for his people. He was so good. That why would they ever follow other gods? It's worth remembering that part of the reason is because God doesn't always give us what we want. Our desires have gotten askew. Our desires aren't what they should be. So very often we want things inordinately. We want things in the wrong, either in the wrong way or we want things too much in ways that aren't good for us. Our challenge is we have a hard time trusting God to be God, that he knows what is best for us. And so it's not surprising that Israel turned away to other gods because they're like, Yahweh's not giving us what we want. We'll go find a God that will. That's part of the warning that comes to us because we are very much like our fathers. <laughs> we very much tend to, we want what we want and we need for our desires to be reoriented by God, to be drawn back to him. And that's a big part of what Jesus is going to do in the Lord's prayer. Our New Testament lesson comes from the gospel of Matthew chapter six. Matthew chapter 6, hear now the word of our God. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, 
For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. In a very real way, you can see how Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6 is all of a piece. Because, sure, in one sense, you might say, oh, it's talking about giving to the poor and prayer and fasting. And then it moves on to talking about uh, treasures in heaven and anxiety. But really, what Jesus is doing all fits together. Because what our day did not invent anxiety. Jesus talks about the anxiety of his own day, people being concerned for what are we going to eat? I I think in a very real way, part of our modern 
preoccupation with anxiety is because we have so much. When maybe a few of you have actually experienced hunger in the sense of, and I don't know where my next meal is going to come from. Maybe a few of you have experienced that. But it's fairly rare in our circles. This was a real anxiety in Jesus' day. There's no guarantee. You think, and you think back to our Old Testament lesson from First Kings. It hadn't rained for three years. Where is our next meal going to come from? We're hungry. Sort of when... When Jesus is talking about anxiety, this is sort of, he's talking about being anxious for the basic necessities of life. Part of our problem today is we have an overabundance of everything, which creates its own sorts of anxieties. I mean, think about it this way. If you lived more than 250 years ago, you wouldn't have even heard that Russia had invaded Ukraine. And it would be months, years, before detailed information was available as to what was going on in Ukraine. And in one sense, sure, what could Americans do about it? But today, we have an immense quantity of information about the war. Some true, some false. <laughs> There's all, and how much of it are we actually in a position to be able to verify, falsify, that's true for the war in Ukraine. It's true, true for a lot in modern politics. How much, I mean, when, you, when you think about what do you and I, sitting here in South Bend, what do we actually know as opposed to, oh, well, people I trust say this. Well, we, get, we are just inundated by vast quantities of information, most of which we actually don't know, and much of which we really couldn't do anything about anyway. But yet, we're all expected to have an opinion and probably post about it on social media. <sighs> what does this actually accomplish? It raises our anxieties about all these things. I mean, I mean probably, probably most of us were, have, you know, when you think about it, we just had a pandemic go through and it hasn't exactly just gone away. And now there's wars, and so we got wars and diseases. I suppose you know, is famine next? I mean, there's there's all these things that have that tend to raise our anxiety level, and that's where what Jesus is doing at the end of chapter six is intimately connected with what he's doing at the beginning of chapter six, because what does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? What does it mean? How do you go about sort of when he says, you know, don't seek after these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Jesus is saying, go to the one who actually is in charge of the universe. Pray. It, the reason why Jesus moves from talking about prayer to talking about anxiety is because this is what we t tends to happen when we don't pray. And as we saw last time, when we don't pray about something, it's because we think we can handle it ourselves, or at least we're not thinking that we need God in this area of our life. So 
anytime you start feeling anxious about something, pray about it. Take it to God. He doesn't promise that the anxiety will go away. So I'm not, I'm not, that's, that's, I don't want to, I don't want to make it sound like, oh, just pray and everything and you'll feel fine. No, it's not that the anxiety goes away. It's that you are going to the one person who can do something about it, who has promised he will do something about it. And you are saying, God, this is yours. This is your situation. This is your world. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. And we'll be talking about that as we go through the Lord's Prayer in the coming weeks. The, the, the Westminster Larger Catechism has a, has a really useful section on prayer. Uh, I didn't have room to put the whole, this whole section in the bulletin, so I did put a, a note that if, if you want to have your Trinity Psalter hymnal open to pages six, uh, 964 to 965, uh, I'll be using the, these answers to sort of help us think through some things. What, what is our pattern in prayer, and how are we to think about prayer? The, the Catechism sets up our discussion of the Lord's Prayer by, by asking a few general questions about prayer, and it draws together a, a wide range of scriptures in the, the answers. Uh, and it starts with a couple questions about for whom we are to pray and what things we are to pray for. And not surprisingly, the answers are very broad and comprehensive. For whom are we to pray? We are to pray for the whole church of Christ upon earth, for magistrates and ministers, for ourselves, our brethren, yea, our enemies, and for all sorts of men living or that shall live hereafter, but not for the dead, nor for those that are known to have sinned the sin unto death. Now, it's the last phrase that everybody immediately jumps to. It's like, wait, what? Not for those who have sinned the sin unto death? What is that? Well, it comes from 1 John 5, verse 16, where John says that we, he says, I do not say that you should pray for the one who is known to have committed the sin that leads to death. Now, part of the challenge in John, 1 John 5 is that John doesn't explain what exactly he means by that. So there's a lot of discussion about, okay, what does it mean? Probably it has something to do with some sort of final apostasy, uh, sort of an irrevocable rejection of Christ. And uh, people sometimes have asked me, like, ah, what if I've committed the unpardonable sin? My answer is always, have you repented of it? Well, yes, but I don't know if, whether God has forgiven me. Well, John, at the beginning of his epistle, had told us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So if you have repented of it, it couldn't have been the unpardonable sin. So, that's the, you know, if you're worried you might have committed the, the, the unpardonable sin, if you're worried that, oh no, what if I've sinned the sin that leads to death? Repent. Because if you repent, you haven't done it. I mean, that's the, that's the simple way of putting it. I mean, we could spend more time on it when we go through First John. But, but you'll notice that the, the, the catechism here doesn't try to resolve the question. The, the catechism simply affirms what First John says. We are not required to pray for the one who has sinned the sin to death. And they're not, all, all, they're, all they're trying to do here is say, this is what the Bible says, so we're saying it too. Um, we can, they're not answering the question, they're just saying, this is what we're supposed to do. We are required to pray for everyone else. Uh, we're supposed to pray for the whole church. And you can find throughout the scriptures lots of examples of Paul, you know, Paul praying for the whole church. Uh, for magistrates as well as for ministers. I mean, Paul urges us to, to pray for those in authority over us, whether in the, in the civil government or for those who, are, who preach the gospel. Uh, and we should pray for ourselves. We should pray for our brethren. We should pray even for our enemies. 
And there is much throughout the scriptures about praying for, for those, you know, basically all, everybody around us, praying for generations yet unborn. But they also point out that the, there's nowhere in the scriptures are we ever commanded to pray for the dead. And there's also no examples in the Bible of people praying for the dead. So that's why they say, but uh, we, don't, we don't pray for the dead. But then what things are we to pray for? We are to pray for all things. Again, in the same way that we pray for all people, we pray for all things, although with one exception. So we pray for all things tending to the glory of God, the welfare of the church, our own or others' good, but not for anything that is unlawful. In the same way that we're to pray for everyone, except those who have committed the sin that leads to death, so also we are to pray for everything except that which is unlawful. I mean, don't ask God to bless wickedness. Don't ask God for something that runs contrary to what he has said. Rather, pray for all things, for the glory of God and for the good of the church and for all humanity. I mean, that's, that's where, so in that sense, what are we to pray for? Everything under heaven. Which is, it's a reminder to us that it's, there's not, it's, it's not like there's, there's this category of things, okay, we pray, don't, pray for, don't pray for that, don't pray for that. No, is it something that's happening, then pray for it. <laughs> is, it is it something in your life, then pray for it. Is it something, uh, pray in every situation, there's not a single thing that you, well, this thing is not really important enough to pray for. No. I mean, so, I mean, this is where you lost your keys. Pray. That it's losing your keys. Maybe oh, that's just a, that's just a little thing. But but losing your keys is. Has anybody ever gotten anxious about losing your keys and now you're late and you and then you just your stress level goes to the. Well, see, even the little things are very good things to pray about because it's the little things that tend to we tend to lose sight of. We tend to forget about when I, mean, I know for myself when. When I sort of, the, at my best, I will spend the whole day basically in prayer, where it's just in every moment, in every situation, in every, as I walk around the house, as I go uh, driving around, as I'm here and there, at my best, it will all be sort of bathed in prayer. Now, of course, at my worst, I get forgetful, and it's usually when I start getting anxious that I start noticing it. <laughs> it's Part of it is... Anxiety, this is where you can take anxiety as God's reminder to you to pray. When you start feeling anxious, that's a reminder. Oh, right. I'm not God. You are. I need to bring this to you. And so if, I know many of us struggle with various levels of anxiety, but if you take anxiety as a reminder to pray, that will be at least one way of taking something that's not a great thing and, and using it for for good and um, and it's not it's not to say that therefore that's all you need to do anxiety oftentimes yeah talk talk with a, a counselor that you trust and there can be medical reasons for anxiety that need to be dealt with medically as well so there's there's more that should be said but the one thing that always needs to be said is that anxiety should drive us to god trusting him to uh to do what he has promised and really, that's uh, the, the sort of the central question we're looking at today is, how are we to pray? And I, I love the way the catechism puts this because it's, it, you know, we are to pray with 
an awful apprehension of the majesty of God, and a deep sense of our own unworthiness, necessities, and sins, with penitent, thankful, and enlarged hearts, with understanding, faith, sincerity, fervency, love, and perseverance, waiting upon him with humble submission to his will. And in a way, you can see this is really at the heart of what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6. When we have a clear apprehension of the majesty of God, when we see him for who he is, and we have a, a, a deep sense of our own unworthiness, when we see how far short we fall, when we have a clear sense of our necessities, of those things that are needful, because oftentimes when we look around at, at our life, we see many things that are needful, we see many things that are lacking, many things that are, that are not the way they should be, whether in some cases due to sin, in other cases simply due to our miseries. But we, then we recognize that he is God, and we are not. And that brings us to prayer. And that's then also when we, have, when we have penitent hearts. Then we see ourselves truly in relation to God. When we have thankful hearts. Then we, we, we rejoice in what God has done in Jesus. And I realize in our, in our day we, when we, we don't use the phrase enlarged. When we use the phrase enlarged heart. That usually is referring to a medical condition. But... But if you think about it, we still use the term, somebody is big-hearted. Uh, so, you know, that's what they're saying. When, when our hearts, when our, when our love for God is increased, then we pray with understanding. We pray with faith. We pray with sincerity and fervency and love. We persevere in prayer. We wait upon God. And we humbly submit to his will. And when we pray in this way, our anxiety tends to dissipate because we remember that he is God and we are not. And Jesus is speaking of this in Matthew 6 when he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. When you're focused on what other people think, then you will tend to increase your anxieties rather than your peace. In Matthew 6, Jesus uses three examples of practicing righteousness, giving to the needy, praying, and fasting. Jesus is talking about how to live as his disciple. And as a disciple, we are learners. We are those who have, who have put ourselves under the authority of a master. Uh, the disciple is, is an apprentice. We are, we, are, we are those who are learning from Jesus how to live in this world. Jesus will say at the end of Matthew's gospel, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. A disciple is not merely one who hears. A disciple is one who hears and puts into practice what his master is saying. So to be a disciple of Jesus is what the Sermon on the Mount is, is explaining. Jesus himself is the one who perfectly exemplifies his whole sermon. And so those who follow Jesus, those who are disciples of Jesus, will look more and more like this too over time. And here in the first half of chapter 6, Jesus provides a warning, a caution to us about how to practice our righteousness and how not to. And these three things, you know, giving to the needy, praying, fasting, 
Jesus is looking at how do you give to the needy? How do you pray? How do you fast? It, it's called, Jesus calls this practicing righteousness. And so how do we practice prayer? How do we practice giving to the needy? How do we practice fasting? And Jesus emphasizes the importance of our motives. He says, what, why are you doing it? Why are you giving to the needy? Why are you praying? Why are you fasting? Is it, is it in order to be seen by others? Or is it in order to be seen by God? Those who do this before others, they have their reward. They, they're not look, looking for anything from God. And so God will give them what they want. They want respect from others? Okay, then he'll give, they can have that. They don't want anything from him. So they, he won't give them anything. That's basically, there's a way, God's poetic justice is revealed an awful lot in scripture. But whose eyes matter to you? Who, why do you do the things that you do? And, you know, when you're a child, your, your parents are everything. I mean, the way that a child responds to, to a, a father's praise, I mean, it's a beautiful thing to watch because sort of when 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 i when I, I praise my son sort of the way he glows is 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 fantastic and and there's a reason for that god is teaching us something about himself he is our heavenly father and he wants us to look to him for our praise and reward when your heavenly father praises you your heart should sing our our problem is that we don't learn the lesson properly and as we grow up we do not transfer our desire for praise to God, but we look to others and we look for the applause of those around us. And so Jesus urges us to give to the needy in secret, to pray in secret, to fast in secret. Not so that, not, it's, it's, the point here isn't that, oh, nobody should ever know what you're doing. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, back in chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus had said, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is not against other people seeing you pray, seeing you give, seeing you fast. He's not, but what is your motive? What are you looking for? If you do it to be seen by men, then when men praise you, you've been fully paid. If you do it because you are a child of God and you are seeking his praise, then your father who is in secret will see in secret and reward you. I mean, to put it simply, God is pleased to reward that which is sincere. I know, but if you're, if you're really self-conscious, you're like, I'm not really that, I'm not that good. I, even the good things that I do, I do with mixed motives. And so, but... That's where God is pleased to reward that which is sincere. And as we, uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples, he's talking to those who are already his people. So the Sermon on the Mount is not how to win favor with God. Jesus is talking about how the Father relates to us as his children. So think about that. There's sort of when your child does something good, what do you do? Well, you smile, you give them a hug, you say, well done. Well, that's what your heavenly father does. When you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus, your father in heaven smiles. He gives you a hug. He says, well done. 
And you might be saying, oh, but yeah, I was only sort of only partly doing that for good motives. I was also, and he's like, no, no, no. That's why my son died for you. I don't look at that anymore. I take the smidgen of that which is holy in you. And I look at that because that's who I made you to be in Jesus. When your heavenly father sees you looking like Jesus, he is pleased. So the point is not that you need to be secretive in doing your righteous deeds. The point is that you shouldn't really care who is watching on earth. What matters is that your heavenly father is watching. Do you act differently when you're alone and when you're in public? Do you, do you pray well in public but ignore God in private? This is at the heart of what Jesus says about prayer in verse 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Now, when he talks about them praying in the synagogue, uh, the synagogue was not the place for worship in the New Testament. Uh, this was, this is, worship is happening at the temple. The synagogue was the place for studying the scriptures and coordinating care for the needy. It's, it's like more like a school or a community center than a, a worship place. But the scribes and the Pharisees would do their private devotions publicly in the synagogue. And that's what Jesus is criticizing. He's saying they want to be seen by others. For them, people are big and God is small. In contrast, Jesus says, no, when you pray, Go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. He's not saying never pray in public. Rather, he's saying you should not be caring what others think of you. You should pray the same way in public that you pray in private. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do. Uh, think back to First Corinthians, First uh, Kings, eighteen, where the 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 priests of Baal, the prophets of Baal, are, are, they're spending all day long shouting and screaming and cutting themselves. And it's like, that's not, that doesn't do anything for God. Heaping up empty phrases. No, if you're praying to the God who knows what you need before you ask, then your prayers should be characterized by simplicity, directness, and honesty. Again, the catechism says it well, an awful apprehension of the majesty of God and a deep sense of our own unworthiness, necessities, and sins with penitent, thankful, and enlarged hearts, with understanding, faith, sincerity, fervency, love, and perseverance, waiting upon him with humble submission to his will. You're not going to convince God by getting more flowery. If you, if you add lots of extraneous details... You're talking to the one who knows all things. So go to him and, you know, tell him what you're, what you're praying for but that, and speak to your heavenly father who knows the whole situation already and tell him and ask him. We'll, we'll talk about the content of the Lord's Prayer over the next few weeks, but I'll, I'll, just, I'll just note that when Jesus talks about forgiving others their trespasses. He, he adds the comment in verse 14 that if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. 
I've commented several times in the last few weeks about the importance of repentance, that in repentance, you're not just asking for forgiveness. In repentance, you're saying, no, here's how I sinned. Here's how I have wronged God and you. And, but here is where Jesus deals with the other side of it. Because the other side of it is, when somebody has repented, you need to forgive. And indeed, Jesus goes so far as to say that if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. This is how important forgiveness is. Uh, Several years ago, we hosted a group of Rwandans who were uh, preparing for the 20th anniversary of the Rwandan genocide. So 2014 would have been the year. Uh, many, Many of those who had participated in the killings had repented and and so one of, the, one of the big questions at that conference that we hosted was, was what, how do we respond to those who killed our people, to those who killed our family members, our, 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 our husbands, our wives, our children, our parents? One of the speakers said it, I, I don't know that I could have addressed that group like this, but since he had experienced it too, and he, he, he could say it with a way that somebody else might just sound rude. He said... You can either forgive them and go to heaven with the penitent killers of your family, or you can refuse to forgive and go to hell with the impenitent killers of your family. I was like, given that your brother uh, was killed by, you're, you're actually, you can say that, I would have a hard time saying that in that context. But he was right. I mean, Jesus says, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. If you will not forgive others, then God will not forgive you. Now, it's, let, let me be clear also, there are two parts to forgiveness. There is a disposition of forgiveness and there is a transaction of forgiveness. The disposition of, of forgiveness is, is really the heart of forgiveness. God has forgiven us, so we should be inclined to forgive others. So that says the disposition is, I, I want to forgive you. I, am, I have a forgiving disposition toward you. But the transaction is also important. The illustration I like to use is Saul of Tarsus. Saul, when he's heading for Damascus... Does God have a disposition of forgiveness towards Saul of Tarsus? Yes. But as Saul is trying to kill Christians, not just trying, as Saul succeeds in killing Christians, is Saul forgiven? No. The transaction of forgiveness hasn't happened yet. So... If, for that reason, I mean, you think about Ananias and who's the, you know, who God sends to meet Saul in Damascus and it's Ananias sort of like, hey, he's, he, he came here to kill us. You're sending me to him. So would, would, would Ananias have gone to Saul um, and, and would, would he have properly said at first without knowing anything else, ah, Saul, we, we forgive you. The transaction can't happen yet. Now, but Ananias shows a disposition to forgive as well. Because when he sees that Saul has seen the light, very literally, um, then he recognizes, ah, then we must forgive him even as God has forgiven us. 
So that's where the, it's important to distinguish between the disposition of forgiveness. Because part of it is, if you don't have a disposition of forgiveness, then you won't be ready to forgive when the person comes. And that's where, so you need to have a disposition of forgiveness to say, okay, God has forgiven me, and so I must forgive others the way he has forgiven me. When that disposition is yours, and you, and you want, I realize, I realize there are, and many of you, most of you, maybe even all of you, have somebody in your life where you're sort of like, ouch, that's going to be hard. Because that, the, way, the way that person treated me, the way that person, I mean, I think we all have those people in our lives once we have lived long enough to have had that many relationships. And that's where to recognize that the reason why Jesus says this so bluntly is because we need to hear it. (laughs) Because we all have this problem. We all want to reserve judgment, as it were. But Jesus calls us to forgive the way he has forgiven us. So I should also add that this the idea of you sometimes hear people say oh forgive and forget mm. there are people you know, when people have done particularly heinous things you don't put you don't put them in the position of being able to do it again easily and quickly so forgiveness does not mean therefore they can you know every, everything's we, 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 we don't we don't remember a word of it no Forgiveness means that you are not holding it against them, but it means you may have, there may be good reason to say, um, they have not yet borne fruit in keeping with repentance. And so if they haven't borne fruit in keeping with repentance, there's the, the transaction of forgiveness isn't complete yet. So, but that's, we'll, we'll, we'll actually talk more about that when we get to the Lord's Prayer on forgiving. Um, but, Jesus then um, also speaks to us of the importance of, of fasting in our, in our practice of righteousness. And just, I want to encourage us to reflect on how we've forgotten how to fast. Uh, fasting involves the, the, the discovery of what we serve. Can, is, can, you, can you do without it? Uh, you know, how hard would it be to go for a week without any electronic devices? Uh, hmm, that maybe an electronic fast could be good and for most of us. I mean, nothing enslaves us more than that which we think we cannot live without. But the practice of fasting is man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Fasting is designed to remind us that we are beggars. We are poor. We are helpless. We are hungry. When we go for a day or a week without food, we begin to see more clearly what really matters. And I I realize there are some people who have medical conditions that make a total fast dangerous, but that's where even whatever whatever would be the, the appropriate for what you can handle. A, a fast should be one, something that is, that where, where we are setting aside something that, that really matters to us in order to focus on the one who really matters more. Uh, and also I would note that Jesus doesn't say, 
if you fast. He says when you fast, just like he says when you pray or when you give to the needy. A Christian who never fasts would be like a Christian who never prays or a Christian who never gives to the needy. That this is that when we fast, and whether it's corporate fasts that we do as a church together or individual fasts that you do as a family or as an individual, that when we fast, we should be, we should be thinking not about what others think of us, but rather we should be practicing our righteousness in order to be seen by God, as Jesus says. And, and that's why Jesus uses these things to set up his, convert, his discussion of, of anxiety. Because what are you anxious about? As you look down the road and you see what's coming down the path in your life, Jesus says that, yeah, the Gentiles seek after all these things. Your heavenly father knows what you need. And he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Sometimes when we hear, seek first the kingdom of God, we think it means, oh, that we have to ignore all these things we need. But that's not what Jesus says. When Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. He's not saying that when you get up in the morning, you shouldn't put on clothes. He's not saying that when you get up in the morning, you shouldn't eat something. He's saying that you should pray about these things, that you should be you should be thinking about these things as how, how can I, with all that I am and all that I have, how can I follow Jesus? Do you pray about these things? Again, if there's something you don't pray about, that suggests that you think that God, you don't need God's help with it. If we're seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then at the very least, we should be praying about all these things. So let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, have mercy on us because we forget you very easily and we get anxious and consumed with all of the things of life, many of which we have very little control over. And, and we pray that you would have mercy on us, that you would help us to remember that you alone are God and you alone are the one who rules over all things. And so we can have confidence that, that you will work all things together for, for your glory, for our good, and for the salvation of your people. Have mercy on us, we pray, and, and strengthen us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.